Well, this morning, as we uh, get into God's Word, we're going to be beginning a four-week series. Um, yeah, we finished the Gospel of John, so that's, I came off of that, and I'm like, what do we do now? <laughs> um, but we're going to start a four-week series in, in the book of Isaiah, looking at four um, passages called Servant Songs um, that were written 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And we're going to be looking at answering the questions, who is this servant? Why did he matter 700 years before Jesus' birth, and why does he matter now? So with that said, would you get a Bible and get your Bible or one near you in the pew and open up to the book of Isaiah? And we're going to be, it's right about in the middle of your Bible, just if you found Psalms, go right. Um, And we're going to be starting in Isaiah chapter 42. Um, As you're turning there, I want to say um, I am very, very grateful for the elders who stepped in last week to uh, lead Sunday school and cover additional elements of our worship gathering um, uh, when I wasn't here. And as well for, uh, he's not here this morning, but we can still give thanks for him. Uh, for Larry Jocelyn, who's uh, uh, the uh, director of the Living Water Rescue Mission here in town, um, uh, for coming in last minute to preach. Oh, thank you. Thanks, sweet pea. Um, And I say last minute because, and maybe none of you else are you like this, because it took up almost to the last minute for me to admit I wasn't going to make it. (laughs) Um, I couldn't meet the needs that I had by drinking enough tea and getting enough honey and gargling enough salt water and taking enough cough drops for me to get up and um, faithfully carry out the ministry God's called me to. Um, I had lost my voice and I was weak and my wife knew it long before I did. None, that never happens to any of you guys, right? Right? Yeah. <laughs> and and not on, on top of that, everybody else in my house was sick too, so um, we're, we're all dealing with it together. So I want to thank you guys for praying for us. Um, we are on the mend, thankfully. And I say all this uh, by way, as we get into this passage, because it's, it speaks about something in our lives as people in this world. We work very, very hard in this world to try to meet our needs. We offer all kinds of remedies to things. Some work, some are, don't work at all. Um, anything from, and this is not just health-wise. Sure, we could talk vaccines and antibiotics, but there's all the needs that we try to meet through peace treaties, through world religions, through therapy. What about our greatest needs? Can we actually meet them? Is there something that actually meets that need? And I'll just give you an exa- some examples of needs that we have that we try desperately to try to meet, but we can't. What do we need when we or someone we love isn't getting better. 
and we need to put our affairs in order or their affairs. What do we need? What do we need when we try to chase after thing after thing, pleasure after pleasure, only to come right back to the exact same spot we started with the word more on our lips? You know what I mean? What do we need when we feel eternity closer than before? Either from, and the oldest guy in the room laughs, either from age or, or from the world and the media portrayal of the world around us. Here's another one. What do we need? What do we really need when it feels like we're, our lives are, is the only one that's not picture perfect? When everything in our lives isn't going okay, but it seems like in other people's lives it is. That they've got something, they've got those things figured out. And it's just, it's just me. It's just my life. What do we need? What do we really need? What do we need most when we get focused on us? Well, God knows that, that we have needs, and he has an answer for that. And he says, our deepest needs have a name, and it's Jesus. So let's look at this passage, Isaiah chapter 42. Would you stand with me as we read God's word this morning? Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 9. Kids read it, but we'll repeat it. It's always good to repeat, at least the word anyway. Behold my servant whom I behold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and faintly, a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, and who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. You may have a seat. Our deepest needs have a name, and it's Jesus. And we have just read a passage of the Old Testament written about 700 years before Jesus showed up on the scene. And this was written to a nation, the nation of Israel, who was about to be or who was on their way into exile in a pagan empire, one that didn't show any favors to the God of Israel, the empire of Babylon. 
And do you know why? They, you remember why they were sent there? They were sent there because they thought they could meet their greatest and deepest needs with someone or something other than the God of the Bible, the God who had made them a nation, and w- and anything or anyone that is sought by us or anyone other than God, the Scriptures call an idol. And this matters to us because we are people who should believe that all of the Old Testament relates to Jesus the Christ. That he is not only this Lord and Savior of the New Testament, but he he also is Lord and Savior in the Old. Because 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17 says this. It says, all Scripture... All of it is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I'm making that connection that this passage, this servant, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And that hopefully we will all see that as we go along. But here's the question. What do we need this servant for? What do we need Jesus for? Why do we need Jesus? That's a question every unbeliever should ask. And it's one that we need to remind ourselves of why we do need Jesus. What what we need him for. Firstly, in this passage, we need Jesus to bring justice. Look what he says he does in verse 1. He will bring forth justice to the nations. And then verse 4, verse, actually at the end of verse 3, he will faithfully bring forth justice. And verse 4, he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Now it seems in our day, just in the past week or or few weeks, that our day and age is driven from court case to court case. I mean, there's even locally, there's almost one always on the front page of the New York News Times. And then there's the, the national news. Maybe these sound familiar to you. George Floyd, Ghislaine Maxwell, Ahmaud Arbery, Kyle Rittenhouse, Dobbs versus Jackson. Now, maybe there are some mixed motives in each of these. But, there is a fundam- but these express a fundamental need of the human heart for justice. That something wrong has happened and it needs to be righted. And we believe in ourselves, everyone does, whether they believe Jesus or not believes that justice needs to be served in some way. Why? (laughs) And you can't get away from this. It's everywhere. There's evil in the world. There are wrongs that need to be righted. And we know that it needs to be dealt with. So here's the question. How does Jesus do it? How does he deal with injustice? How does he bring forth justice? 
Well, first we see in this passage, he does it by God's power. Behold my servant, whom I uphold. This is God talking. My chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. There is no higher court of appeal than the throne of God. And that is actually the biggest key to understanding justice. Do you see that? If God is not the foundation and the power of justice, for justice, guess what is happening? Justice is being perverted. Even if it's a correct verdict and the process is generally okay. Because it starts at, it doesn't, because those do not start at the proper foundation of what is wholly right, wholly good, wholly true, wholly just. That's God Himself. But the servant here is commissioned to execute justice to the entire world by God Himself. And what does God say about Him? He says, In whom my soul delights, God is pleased with Him because He represents. God himself. And over and over in the Gospels, we hear this retelling. This is my beloved son. A voice came from heaven pointing and talking about Jesus, of whom I am well pleased. And this son Jesus is here called my chosen. Maybe you went to the New Heights Assembly running of the that... Um, Christmas special, The Chosen. Well, it, spoiler, this, the, the series is called that because it's about Jesus. Now in this, chosen meant that God had anointed him. Chosen him for a specific purpose of bringing justice to the nations. And that's why we call Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Christ. It means anointed one. It means chosen one. And he brings forth justice, being God's chosen one, by God's power. Secondly, he does it without a lot of noise. Look at this. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. You know, this actually really, really frustrated the people who were following Jesus in the first century. They wanted someone who had a whole lot of pomp and circumstance to come in as the revolutionary king to wipe out the Romans and the corrupt and change the corrupt Jewish leadership. You want to know the closest Jesus got to that? He rode, in on, rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. An animal representing peace, not war. And his life and ministry were never for the purpose of raising a big political stink, even though it was very political. And I don't even have to give you examples of how much press and politics goes along with justice these days. Right? Jesus brings justice without that kind of noise. 
That's one of the ways you can tell that it's Jesus. It doesn't look like the way the world does it. But let the record show clearly that him bringing it without a lot of noise resulted in a very loud and clear message that justice cannot and never will be snuffed out. That justice will be faithfully brought to completion. And that is good news. That is really good news. And that's good news for those who don't often make the headlines or have much power or influence to make a big political stink. Because thirdly, Jesus does it without crushing the vulnerable. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. Was Jesus in the palace of Herod or Caesar or in the Senate of Rome when he did his ministry? No, where was he? He was with lepers, prostitutes, tax collectors who were considered traitors to their nation. He was with blue-collar fishermen, everyday students of Scripture. And not that Jesus doesn't desire salvation for those who are well-off and in positions of power and influence. He very much does. But so often when the rich and powerful execute justice, guess who gets hurt? At their, guess who's expended in that pursuit of their justice? The vulnerable. Single black moms. The unborn. Even those who are struggling with a great conflict of hormones truth, and lies regarding their gender and sexuality. They are often used as pawns by the rich and the powerful to get their agenda across in the name of justice. But Jesus isn't like that. A bruised reed he will not break, a smoldering wick he will not quench. And what that also means is that he's for you brother and sister in the Lord Jesus Christ, you who believe Jesus. Because Jesus, when he brings justice, he comes to bring hope and to vindicate our hope, however feeble of his followers. And maybe sometimes in your life, you've had times where you have faced intense discouragement and despair. And wondering, where is God when this is happening in my life? Why do I feel so far away from God? And it feels like your faith is hanging on by just a little thread. Well, remember this verse. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He is faithful and he will not snuff you out in the pursuit of justice. And fourthly, Jesus brings forth justice, real justice, as real justice. The 
Look what he says at the end of verse 3. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established, till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. What does that mean? That means he actually does it. He actually brings forth justice. And we should say, Amen. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. And we say, we want justice. But do we really? Because the justice rendered by Jesus is not him growing is him not growing faint and discouraged as he is mocked, betrayed, put through a false trial, rejected by his own people, condemned by Gentiles, and then to top it off, is nailed to a wooden cross to die. And it gets worse. He's there, Dying on the cross because of sin, which is injustice against God, of which every single one of you, man, woman, child, is guilty, including me. So you want justice? Okay. You have to be part of the justice process. But that's why there is a cross, isn't it? He is there on that cross to take the verdict of guilty away from you. He is there on that cross to take away the verdict of guilty away from those who have hurt you and repented and those who will hurt you and repent. You see, the symbol God has chosen for establishing justice is the symbol of agony. And the only one ever never to deserve being there was the one who was put there, who willingly went there to establish justice on the earth. So do you see why the coastlands wait for this? Why they want this kind of justice? This good news that says justice has been done, has been served. How do we respond to this? Two ways. You either reject his justice and you face it yourself in which you will be shown to be condemned as you already are or you believe that he has established justice and has taken, your ju taken the justice due you upon himself. That's God's version of justice that is placed on Jesus, not you. We need Jesus to bring justice. We also need Jesus not to just bring justice by taking our place on the bench. Right? Because maybe we don't know our need quite like we think we do. And we can get into this habit as Christians. I know I can. 
where we say on a Sunday morning, yes, Jesus takes my sins away, and then we move on with life, living it as though sins aren't that bad, or that Jesus doesn't take it away. Our, great, our deepest needs have a name, and it's Jesus. And he not only brings justice, we need him, secondly, to free sinners. So here's a question. <laughs> we can say that too. But how do we know that God wants to free sinners? Look with me, look with me at verse 5 in this passage. God is the creator of all people. That's one way we know. Because he says this, Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Now, this is a, a literary device that is used by God as he's about to establish something really, really cool. But what does it mean? It means that God is the creator of the world, of heaven and of earth. And he is the creator who gives breath to the people on the earth and those who walk in it. And he tells us this because he has creator's rights over what he has made. And his rights, because of who he is, is he wants to take care of his creation. He cares very deeply for his creation. Even though it's broken, he cares very deeply because people are still made in his image. Made to reflect him. Made to worship him. You remember what God said after he had created everything, including people? God saw all that he had made, Genesis 1. And he, and he said it was very good. Very good. So here's a question. Do you believe that God, who created everything very good and declared it very good, wants his creation to remain in very bad? Because that's where we're in right now, apart from him. Very bad. Which is what has happened because of sin. The easy answer is, of course he doesn't. This is God, not some cruel, fake God that looks like Satan or us. And this declaration of God gives us the next reason we know that God wants to free sinners. He is the creator of all people. And secondly, God gives a covenant. That's what that whole title was meant to, to preface, to start us with. This God is making this covenant. And he says in verse 6, I am the Lord. I am who I am. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, and from the prison those who sit in darkness. But guess who he's making... Guess who he's saying this to? He's not saying this to everybody out there. He's saying it to a single person. When it says, I have called you, that's singular, not plural. 
I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people. So, what is a covenant? We don't usually use that word unless you live like in a gated covenant community or something like that. It's where two or more persons or parties swear to obligate themselves to keeping a certain kind of relationship. On pain of death, actually. <laughs> Think of marriage. A man and a woman commit themselves, what, is the vow, what do the vows say? Forsaking all others until death do us part. Now, do you know we have a hard time understanding this because lots of people play fast and loose with those kind of words in our day. So many. But let's remember what God intends when he has, has a covenant in mind. It's a relationship because the husband and wife, when they come together in those vows, are no longer man A and woman B over here. They are one. They are a new relationship. They're identified with that. And that is how God makes covenants. He's a covenant-making God who establishes relationships with his people. Relationships where he obligates himself to certain promises, and the people are too as well. And so what does he say about a covenant here? He says the servant is the covenant. He's not just stipulating terms, he's stipulating a person. And isn't that who Jesus is? The way to have a relationship with God, a life lifelong eternal relationship with God where we are freed from our sins and we are now made new creatures in Christ? And Jesus himself, we sang it last week, Emmanuel, God with us. God come to us, for us, to have new life with him. And here is why we need Jesus to free sinners. Because in a covenant relationship, usually there are obligations to be kept on both sides. And guess what? Look at the people here that are, supposed to, that are supposedly to keep certain obligations. What are they? A light for the nations. That implies they're in darkness. Open the eyes that are blind. Prisoners from the dungeon. But those in prison who see nothing but darkness. People who are in prison and are in darkness cannot find their way out. They cannot keep the covenant. And the truth is, without Jesus, we cannot enjoy a relationship with God. We cannot enjoy him until he brings the light, which shows us that, yes, we are in sin and that he is the one who can take it away. that we are in prison, we are in bondage, enslaved to our sin, that no measure of self-help will actually free us from. This Jesus is sent by God as the covenant as someone who comes into a room of a scared child in the dark and turns on a light 
so that things become clear. And says in a comforting and reassuring and familiar voice, I am here. It's okay. You're going to be okay. Don't be afraid, which is the number one command God gives in, his, in this book. Jesus is the one who brings out prisoners from the darkness of their own slavery to sin and the slavery of others. Our greatest needs have a name, and it's Jesus. And this brings us to the final why we need Jesus. Because we've been seeing effects in world history. You just pay attention just a little bit, and you'll see what's really been going on for quite a while. Um, especially in the 20th and 20th century where people made in the image of God have tried to get on with life without the one whom they were made to live with. And in our own lives, when we have tried to do that, we have suffered the fallout that is unimaginable all because of trying to live life without God. And there's a whole world full of people trying to live life without God. But that's why there's Christmas. That's why there's Advent. That's why this prophecy was written. Because thirdly, We need Jesus to bring justice. We need Jesus to free sinners. And we need Jesus to reveal God. I am the Lord. And to anyone who does not believe Jesus, that is the most terrifying and and damning thing you can hear. With Jesus... It is the best news ever. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So how does Jesus reveal God? First, Jesus is about God getting the glory. As I mentioned before, this passage was written after the Holy Spirit through Isaiah pointed out to the people of Israel who were headed to Babylon because of their sinfulness that, their, that the idols that they worshipped, the things that they pursued were absolutely worthless. And all of us are drawn more to carved idols which we can see and try to get glory from than we are to God who keeps glory for himself and who alone is worthy of glory. That's one of the things that makes him God, right? God is worthy of glory. And he says he will not, indeed he should not, give it to anyone less Just like you and I wouldn't give certain things to anybody outside family. You wouldn't entrust certain kinds of information to anybody outside of a really close circle. So 
So if God wants to save the world, but the glory is due only for him, what does God have to do to make his glory known? He makes his glory known by sending his son. Not a carved idol, but someone who people could recognize this man is from God. Indeed, he is the son of God. As John 1 verse 18 said, the only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, the Word incarnate, He has made Him, the Father, known. And as Jesus prayed right before He was arrested and crucified in John 17, what did He say? He said something that would, if He wasn't God, would be blasphemous. He prayed this, He says, And now, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world existed. My glory I will not share with another. He didn't have to share it because God came down to be the servant who meets our deepest needs. He's about God getting the glory. And secondly, Jesus reveals God because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's plan. The section ends with this. Behold, the former things have come to pass, And new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. So what former things is he talking about? There's a bunch of things we could look to. But chiefly on their minds, as they're sitting around campfires in Babylon, is what God had warned them for centuries about. If you disobey me, if you don't believe me, I will send you away so that you will know that I am the Lord. And they worshipped idols, and guess what happened? They were sent away, just like the Lord had said. Behold, the former things have come to pass, Israel. Behold, the former things have come to pass, church. But what were the Israelites who were sitting around those campfires supposed to get from this? What are we supposed to get from this? Not, (laughs) I told you so. That's not why God says this. He says this. Because he wants the people to have faith. To remember the love which they first had for their Lord and their Savior. They were to hope, even in the midst of exile, that God still had a plan for them. That God was still God and wasn't going to abandon his people forever. And that plan was ultimately Jesus. And guess what? The plan is still Jesus. And our deepest needs have his name. That means he's our plan. Or he's a plan for us. Same as for ancient Israel. So here in 2021, we are part of a long line of saints waiting for what? the return of this servant in power to finish what he has promised in Revelation 21 of making all things new. Because we're in a Babylon too. Sojourners and strangers in the world, Peter's, the Apostle Peter told us, that we should live as hope-filled people, though. 
So what are we to do in the discouragement of exile? What are we to do when the remedies of this world can't meet the needs? We're to have faith. We're to trust that the God who has made good on every single promise he has ever made will be faithful to complete the good work that he has begun. And he's not going to fail now. He is not going to fail now, especially because he sent the culmination of it, his own son. And his son has said, it is finished. And that should cause us in faith to persevere, to keep going, to keep running the race. Behold, the former things have come to pass, so we should have no reason to doubt, but eagerly hope and live our lives accordingly that God's promises of His Son's return are sure. And He lovingly tells us, just as He told them, before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Let's pray.